Hello and welcome to The Pod. I'm Nathan Fink. I'm Jasmine Torres-Allen, and this is New Hampshire Family Now. A show about building family in the Granite State. Today in the show, Jasmine and I talk about the art of letting go. Then, pediatrician, professor, public health advocate, and author, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, discusses her book, What the Eyes Don't See, a deeply personal account of the Flint water crisis. And finally, Impact Director Becky Burke helps us make New Hampshire sense of it all. New Hampshire Family Now is brought to you by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Since 1962, the Charitable Foundation has worked hand-in-hand with generous and visionary citizens to maximize the power of giving and support, collaborate, and lead innovative initiatives. Initiatives like New Hampshire Tomorrow, which is focused on making sure children and families have access to education, health care, and career pathways to ensure every family member thrives. To learn more about New Hampshire Charitable Foundation and all their initiatives, go to www. .nhcf.org. This podcast was also brought to you by Family Support New Hampshire. Family Support New Hampshire is NH's coalition of family resource centers and family strengthening programs that exist to ensure Granite State families have access to resources so both caregivers and children can succeed because supported families are strong families. To find a family resource center near you, visit www.fsnh.org. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You know who else is back? Co-host Jasmine Torres-Allen. How you doing? Good. We missed you. <laughs> so how are you? How are things going? Good, good. Everything's really good and um, just enjoying this rain. You know, there's been so much rain. This is the Northwest now. Yeah. I also have different kind of funguses, not personally. <laughs> I, the, the lawn is weird. The, the Everything is weird. I have definitely seen like bigger bugs. Bigger bugs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I, they were just smaller last year. So uh, how's your family? Every, everything Everybody's good? Everybody's great. Um, my son found a really great school. Good. And, you know, we found trauma-informed care, which is awesome. Which is, I was super surprised because they use the language that I was looking for. Yeah. And I think it's key for people to understand what that language is because searching for a school like that, it takes the right language to know what you're looking for. I so appreciate your ability to say, this is what I'm going through. That's because I'm I'm a parent first. Yeah. I think that's why I'm like, I'm always yeah. a parent first. <laughs> yeah, I'm. A, it's like, it's so funny. I'm a parent first, but sometimes I feel like I'm a problem. First. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, because I'm constantly trying to solve something, right? Like I think one thing I am kind of working through is I think I'm ill prepared for the changes that are coming with my oldest. So he's only going to be eight, but kids these days feel like they're bigger and more advanced than I remember myself. A hundred percent. My daughter's six and I just feel like she just wants to do things that I wanted to when I was eight. Yeah. And I'm just like, holy moly, yeah. how do you tackle that? And she's going into that, like that first grade time. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of changes and I actually am kind of like foreshadowing, but I'm having trouble trying to figure out how to let go enough for his exploration. Ooh. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Because there's something that I think for the last eight years, it's been my clock, my house, my rules, which is very old school. And I say it that way, right? <laughs> yeah. But then, then again, the pushback that constantly comes with development is really good pushback. Yes. But I don't know what to do with it. You know, I was listening to a podcast recently and it was talking about how if we remove too many obstacles in our kids' lives, they don't actually build any resiliency. And I was like, oh my goodness, that really goes into like the guiding part of life. Like you're really there to be a guide while they go through the right. most 
emotions of regular life, just like we did. And sometimes we want to protect them from those, you know, big ouch moments. But when you think about it, those big ouch moments in life helped build character and resiliency in us. And we were able to learn to make better choices or worse choices. And that's where the guy, you know, the guiding fits in. But I was like, whoa, I was shaking. I was like, that's so true. If you think about it, we were in this era of like, you know, we're breaking generational curses. We're doing the deep dives into therapy and really, you know, getting better at parenting, I think. And we think about it. I'm like, oh my goodness, if we remove too many obstacles. Right. (laughs) You know, the the phrase that was helicopter parents. Yes. There was another phrase that I heard not long ago called a lawnmower parent. What's a lawnmower parent? You go in front of them and mow all the grass so the path is clear. Right. And I think, you know, with regards to those teenage years, like those, that era is universally informative for us as people. Right. Like when I look back, I was a latchkey kid. Yes. Right. Yeah. I I was the same way. You came home, you locked the door and you cooked, maybe you cooked a meal, maybe you didn't. Yes. Right. And so with regards to this lawnmower period and whatnot, I'm trying to figure out how to get to latchkey mentality. And I... I think if I'm not mistaken, you are looking at that as well through the lens of yeah, teenagers and young adults that I work with. And it's mostly because a lot of the young adults that I work with, you know, they view the world in different ways and the issues that we care about and that we're like, you know, they need these things and, you know, we we know what's best. And a lot of the times, like, you know, teens know, you know, how they feel about something and, you know, how they view the world. It's very different. And they're they're good at vocalizing that. And so um, and that leads into my Jasmine learned something. Right. Is I was listening to um, this podcast called On the Minds and it's led by two teenagers and they are, you know, kind of guiding us through conversations that teenagers care about. Teenagers were Olympic athletes, were young inventors, were musicians, were activists. We come from so many backgrounds and are the most connected we've ever been we have our own set of challenges. Depression, anxiety, and stress are on the rise. Thankfully, we're not in it alone. On Our Minds is a podcast about the teenage experience. Have like a resource and an outlet so that they can better understand themselves. Made by teens for teens. You know, things like LGBTQ plus kids who are trying to come out to immigrant parents or, you know, how to deal with stress or, you know, how to talk to a friend that you might not want to be friends with anymore. You know, those are like really deep conversations that, you know, sometimes adults shy away from. They don't want to talk about. And so these teens are brave enough to kind of guide us through what other teens are thinking about in terms of those issues, because they are thinking about those things. We think that they might be, you know, kind of ignoring those issues in the world. But in reality, they are very much paying attention to them. As an adult, my reaction is just to drag their contact to the uh, trash bin. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, is that positive? Yeah. No. And that's the thing is that like, we're kind of like digging in. When I was listening to the podcast, I dug into myself and I was like, ooh, this is a good time to visit my teenage self too. I think what we're kind of learning through those years is you've got changes. You've got urges. You've got value structures that you're realizing might not be your own. Right. And they're all new experiences at a constant basis. Imagine that your life is 
is changing at a constant rate. That's what teenagers are experiencing daily. And then they have to deal with all the issues that come with that's going around the world and, you know, mental health. Climate change. We talked about that, too. The, the settling in of your climate is different and having that realization. Right. And I mean, especially with social media and, and the and, you know, media in general, what they're consuming, a lot of it is so negative. And right. so that impact can, you know, really change the way they act and feel and participate in the world and in their communities when they don't feel like they can contribute to a greater whole or anything could change. And so that's why I liked that podcast, because there was it had a lot of silver linings in it, but it was also realistic, you know, from that their perspective. And I think that's the perspective we're missing a lot of the times because the teens are the ones who are going to be dealing with a lot of the issues that are left behind. Right. This is their environment. Exactly. See, now I know why we made that list because you say stuff like this. <laughs> that's just regular work, right? That's called Jasmine doing work. Actually, that's your <laughs> Jasmine next. Jasmine works. Yeah, that's the next one. <laughs> that's your consideration. <laughs> and when we come back, we welcome Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. Don't go anywhere. Today's episode was brought to you by Upreach Therapeutic Equestrian Center. Located in Goffstown, New Hampshire, Upreach partners with the power of horse to create strong children, strong families, and strong communities. To learn more about Upreach Therapeutic Equestrian Center and its many inspirational programs, visit UpreachTEC.org. That's UpreachTEC.org. Today's show was also brought to you by Burgu Media, a full-service media company dedicated to helping nonprofits realize impact stories for print, video, social and legacy media, and more. Both budget-conscious and grant-friendly, Burgu Media helps your organization celebrate the humans in human services. Learn more at burgumedia.com. Hey, it's Nathan, co-host of New Hampshire Family Now. I wanted to take a quick break from the show because it occurred to me that I've never asked you to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribing is free, and when you do it, it helps our placement algorithms, making it that much easier for caregivers across New Hampshire to find valuable information and strategies for their families. Also, you'll be alerted when a new episode drops. And if you like the show, leaving a review helps us that much more. So go to wherever you get your podcast, type in New Hampshire Family Now, and as the kids say, smash that subscribe button. I say click it because if you smash it, then you're going to need a new one. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. The following interview is recorded live at the PCA America 2023 National Conference, Together for Prevention. I'm excited to be here with pediatrician, professor, and public health advocate, Dr. Mona Hanna-Tisha, also keynote speaker at PCA America's 2023 Together for Prevention Conference. Dr. Mona, welcome to the show. Nathan, it's wonderful to be here with you. Oh, and author. I should mention your book, What the Eyes Don't See, a riveting and deeply personal account of the Flint water crisis, and in many ways, a tale of hope. But to get to hope, no matter what crisis, we need to know what we're dealing with. Our time is brief, but I think it's also critical because we have a way of forgetting either willfully or otherwise our recent past. So can you give me, will you give me a thumbnail sketch? How did we get here? How did lead get in the water? Oh, Nathan, that's a great question. And I'll only spend about two hours on this response. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, history is so important and, and you're spot on. We, we close our eyes to history. We forget quickly and then we tend to repeat the same mistakes. So one of the reasons that I wrote this book and that I'm here with you today is to kind of keep sharing history uh, without 
that history, um, we can't move forward. And I and you are all about moving forward, especially on behalf of our kiddos. So Flint's story is a long story, but I'm going to try to make it brief. But, you know, Flint was the birthplace of cars, the auto industry, once the birthplace of prosperity in the middle class. But for decades has been in crisis because of disinvestment, unemployment, plants closing, loss of manufacturing, automation, globalization. The list goes on of why Flint has kind of lost population and has become one of the poorest cities in our state. Because we were so poor, we were near bankrupt and the state took over the city. We became under the control of financial emergency management, which is this anti-democratic law that was pushed through by our gerrymandered legislature and became law in our state. Mm. And fairly quickly, many cities in Michigan, predominantly majority minority cities, lost democracy. Like this is bizarre. 50% of our African-American population in Michigan became under the control of an emergency manager, unelected, unaccountable. So folks were scratching their head like, wait a minute, this is not how America runs its cities. We have democracy. We elect people. We hold them accountable. So an emergency manager came in in 2011 and it was all about cutting costs. It was all about austerity. Cut, 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 cut. And they decided that the water that Flint had been getting um, for half a century uh, from the Great Lakes. So I'm holding up my hand and you can't see it. But for all those folks out there, I'm holding up my hand because Michigan is the mitten state. We are surrounded by the largest source of fresh water in the world. 21% of the fresh water in the world is around Michigan. And that's where we used to get our, our drinking water in, in Flint. But the emergency managers decided, hey, that's now too expensive for this predominantly poor, near bankrupt minority city. And in April of 2014, changed our drinking water from the Great Lakes, high quality, pre-treated to the local Flint River without proper treatment. Uh, so that happened for about, it was uh, for a year and a half, we were on Flint River water, lots of problems. It was corroding car parts at the, at the GM plant, color, odor, skin issues. Was like the list went on of the problems with this water. But throughout, everybody in government was reassuring, saying everything was okay and yeah. in compliance. And I um, heard about the possibility of lead being in the water. And that's... And this was a year and a half after our water switch. And that's the moment my life changed when I heard that lead was in the so water. What is it about lead then that changes the discussion where you say, oh, I'm getting involved here? Uh, um, you know, lead is probably the oldest and most well-studied neurotoxins. Um, we're actually here in Baltimore where so much of the pivotal research was done on, on lead poisoning, but it's also an environmental injustice community. Um, we now know that there's no safe level of lead. We thought decades ago, um, especially pushed by industry that let, that it was safe for folks. German Motors in the 1920s called lead a gift from God when they put lead in gasoline, even though we even, we even knew then over a century ago it was a poison. Um, so incredible science has taught us that there's no safe level, that it can impact the cognition of children, how kids think. It can impact their behavior. It can alter impulsivity and attention and mm -hmm. focusing, and it can leave to lifelong consequences, including adult conditions like high blood pressure, um, chronic diseases, gout, early dementia. So there's these life, potentially life altering consequences. But we've done a good job as a nation in decreasing children's exposure um, because of amazing moms and dads and activists and scientists. We finally got let out of paint and got let out of plumbing and restricted its use in, in, um, in gasoline. But even though we stopped using new lead, we continue to live with the legacy of lead um, in older communities, especially in the Northeast and the Midwest, you know, under layers of dirt, underneath layers of paint, delivering our drinking water, 
continues to be lead and it continues to impact our most vulnerable children. Lead is a form of environmental racism. The burden does not fall equally of who's exposed. Now, I want to pick up on that because whether it's forever chemicals, these are crises of access, justice, equity and, and family. So how did then this become the crux of access and environmental justice and equity? Yeah. So, you know, this is one example in a long list of examples of inequity. And I think the pandemic is another example of how not everybody bore the same burden to this public health crisis. And to me, the lessons are the same. It's about who we value um, and how we value people and and really the role of of prevention. Uh, This conference is all about prevention. What can we do to do primary prevention, which means, you know, making sure kids, uh, that we protect kids as much as possible before they're exposed to abuse or neglect or lead or whatever. Um, So, you know, as a nation, we we are very reactive and we do a lot of band-aiding and we don't often get at the crux of the issue and to prevent those issues. Um, I mentioned at the conference, um, one of my favorite quotes uh, by Frederick Douglass, um, abolitionist over a century ago said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Mm-hmm. I love that quote because it is so true. It is so much easier to invest and protect children than to spend so much money and so much time on the consequences of our inaction uh, because we fail to protect children. It's cheaper too. It's, it is cheaper. We also, um, I just published a paper in health affairs about the cost savings of lead pipe replacements. <laughs> so I, you know, I would, I'd, I spoke, if testified before Congress and policymakers are like, we cannot dig up lead pipes across the country. That's too expensive. I'm like, no, it's actually not. Um, there is a cost to our inaction right. uh, when we add up the healthcare and special education, the criminal justice and the economic productivity, there is a cost, not just the, you know, what costs the child and their life, but there's actually an economic cost to, to um, not acting and protecting children. Now this whole conversation, you know, your keynote, uh, all of it does ring, it rings of hope because you're finding these opportunities, right? You're, you're finding ways uh, in which we can look upstream. Yes. So when you look upstream, what is it that we're seeing? Yeah, Nathan, that's a great question. And that's kind of what, um, how I get to spend my day. And how I've been able to, um, you know, since exposing the water crisis, my, my work has been on, on recovery um, and making sure that we don't repeat history and making sure that we can proactively protect kids and families by addressing upstream, upstream issues. So I mentioned testifying before Congress um, about replacing pipes all over the country. And that passed. The Infrastructure Act is a law and we are replacing lead pipes across the country. That's primary prevention. That is what it means to invest in prevention. Um, another project I'm leading right now is called RX Kids. We are giving pregnant moms and babies in the entire city of Flint universal unconditional cash allowances. Amazing. Like this has never been done before in the country. And we are addressing an upstream issue, poverty. Like poverty makes people sick. If you are born into and you grow up in poverty, it can alter your entire life course, especially when it happens in this critical prenatal to infancy window. So I, I, 
I was sick of not being able to prescribe something to treat poverty. Um, I'm sick of band-aiding all the consequences of poverty. So we're like, we're going to do something. We, we, I am an optimist. I have, I, I am in a city with a village of amazing, you know, collaborators, moms and kids and nonprofit partners and government. And we're like, we're going to prescribe away poverty. So this is launching in January. We've already raised about $40 million. It's a public-private partnership. We still have a little more to raise. So if any listeners out there want to donate, FlintRxKids.com. <laughs> so, uh, but we are every, every, starting in January, every pregnant mom and every baby is going to get universal cash allowances. And it's, it's not just about money and economic stability. It's also about telling people we love you and we see you and we hear you and we know it is hard to be a parent and there's a village walking alongside you. My goodness. If, if these are your days, <laughs> what do your nights look like? I'm a, I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm a mom and I go to soccer meets. And Now I want to bring in Children's Trust Director of Impact, Becky Burke, for a quick assessment. Becky, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So it was such a privilege talking to Dr. Mona Hanna, Tisha. And as you know, our 11th Annual Strengthening Family Summit is coming up on September 13th. So having listened to her and the hope that she brings to the conversation about building stronger and more resilient communities, what are some of our New Hampshire opportunities? So I am so excited for the summit coming up. I think it's going to be a phenomenal opportunity for people to look across different sectors of what constitutes community and look at it through multiple lenses around what does it mean to have stable and resilient communities and, um, and by extension, stable and resilient families. Right. So whether you're looking through the lens of childcare, whether you're looking through the lens of housing, there are all kinds of pieces that uh, to make a community feel safe, stable and secure, these pieces need to be in place. And we have been collecting data really over the past three or four years. More recently, we've been collecting data around the kinds of uh, concrete support needs that families have. and. Through our partnership with the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, we've been working with the Family Resource Centers to get concrete supports out to families. Part of it is not a surprise, right? The number one request for these kinds of things um, for concrete supports is in housing. 38% of all the requests that have come in from, from families across the state have been with trying to get assistance for housing. There's a workshop at the summit around housing. And around the importance of housing in providing that that really staple foundation for communities and families, to, you know, to build upon. The second most requested area of support, it was surprising to us, transportation. But it makes sense. It's so expensive to own a car. New Hampshire is not great with with the public transportation. So where does regional planning come in to building resilient communities? right? And to building resilient families. So lots and lots of potential connections and things for us to consider and build on uh, when we talk about all of this work. Um, and we'll touch on so many aspects of it during the summit. Yeah. Now, I did have the pleasure to uh, at the PCA America National Conference to talk to Dr. Clinton Boyd Jr. He's a researcher at Chapin Hall. And I know Chapin Hall does put out a lot of different studies specifically. And most recently, I was reading a study around 
around minimum wage and just understanding what something like focusing on baseline wages does to primary prevention and how it secures uh, a more nurturing environment. Do we have any thoughts, data around that that we can point to currently? So it's interesting. Lindsay Alsop from our uh, from our office just in the past week has been uh, looking at some analysis of exactly that. And what she's done is she has mapped the minimum wage for the more rural New England states over the years, and then also mapped on how the the rates of substantiated neglect has varied with that. And it's very clear, New Hampshire's minimum wage has not changed. The other rural New England states have all increased their state minimum wages uh, as recently as 2016. When you look at the data, their rates of substantiated neglect have dropped and it's in correlation with the increases they've instituted in their state minimum wage. New Hampshire's rate of substantiated neglect has only continued to increase. Wow. Becky Burke, I know you're offsite, so I want to let you go, but I will see you shortly. And thank you so much for jumping back on the show. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Many thanks to the Samuel P. Hunt Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Established in 1951, Samuel P. Hunt Foundation is a Manchester-based, independent nonprofit that provides grants primarily for the arts, children and youth services, faith-based organizations, educational institutions, healthcare, and human services. This podcast was brought to you by Nixon Peabody, who delivers exceptional legal services for clients in the community by combining high performance, an entrepreneurial spirit, deep engagement, and an unwavering commitment to a culture of collaboration, diversity, and humanity. Nixon Peabody works with universities, hospitals, and nonprofits of every size to maximize impact. For more information, visit nixonpeabody.com. Today's show was also brought to you by Merrimack County Savings Bank, who proudly supports the mission and efforts of New Hampshire Children's Trust. Founded in 1867, Merrimack has served people, businesses, nonprofits, and municipalities in central and southern New Hampshire for over 155 years by treating everyone with care, respect, and compassion. Visit your local offices in Bow, Concord, Kentuckook, Hookset, and Nashua, or go to www.themerrimack.com. New Hampshire Family Now is listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play New Hampshire Family Now.